When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey everyone, today's Real Vision Daily Briefing is sponsored by CraneShares. Learn about their KRBN ETF at craneshares.com forward slash KRBN. Now to the top analysis of today's markets. What's behind the bond volatility? Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Real Vision Daily Briefing. With me today is Michael Gayad, Portfolio Manager at Title Financial Group. Hi, Michael. It's great to see you. I was actually going to ask you that question. What's going on with bond volatility? I mean, I'm, <laughs> we're, I'm, we're all asking. I'm on the answers myself. Yeah. <laughs> One thing that we know is there is no consensus. That's what the consensus is. Um, but but there is a lot to go through. By the way, we're going to be taking questions, so you know what to do. You go ahead and put them in the chat. And we'll get to them um, as soon as we can. So, Michael, it's actually been a little while since you and I had the opportunity to do the show together. So give me a sense of what's top of mind for you. What What's sort of your investment thesis right now? Well, I think um, uh, I have been more stressed, uh, which is why I probably have less hair than last time we chatted. Um, no, so a couple of things. I, I've been pretty, I think, vocal on uh, the path of which I think markets could end up playing out based on some of the intermarket work that I do. Um, in February, I kept on tweeting out ominously, March, March, March. Um, and I made the case that March, given some of the indicators I looked at, suggested that uh, March would be volatile. Right? It would just be a, not necessarily a directional fall, just it would be a heightened volatility uh, type of move. Closer to the end of March, you didn't really have it closer to the end of March. You had it obviously earlier with this, what I would argue is a manufactured regional bank crisis, which we can maybe get into, mm -hmm. um, that we're in a broader melt-up type of environment for the year because it's a pre-election year, right, which tends to be the strongest of the presidential cycle. Um, and that if we're going to have anything that really does spark a correction, maybe in April, it may have nothing to do with banks, right? Mm. And I always go back to this point that markets are notoriously good at uh, – uh, showing risks when nobody pays attention to them, right? Now, because narrative follows price, I don't know what that risk is, right? But the fact that for the most part, equities, at least headline averages, haven't really done all that much in the context of what looked like 2008 uh, redux tells me uh, that first of all, the bullish case is valid because there's a lot of latent buys that are coming in. But further to that, that uh, the headline risks are not the real risk. So it's so interesting you say that because I feel like that touches on a nerve that a lot of people have been feeling. It's just so confusing when you look at what's going on and it feels like stuff is breaking, but we can't really see what it is. Um, you know, I spoke with Luke Roman just a couple of hours ago, and he also had that same sense. He also doesn't think this crisis is just about the regional banks. Let's have a quick, quick listen to a, a clip from that. In my view, it's it's not a banking system problem. It's actually way bigger than that, right? It's, yeah. it's a U.S. Treasury G7 sovereign debt balance of payments problem. Because look, treasuries underpin everything, right? It's the collateral for the whole system. So if we're going to have a treasury problem, we're going to have an everything problem. Okay, so that was quick. It's a little teaser, that full interview. Um, in it, Luke really expounds on this view, his view that 
high debt levels have boxed the Fed into a corner. A super fascinating conversation. He sort of walks through his whole thinking um, and has very big implications. That's available on our website. Just hit the QR code for access. But Michael, yeah, he's concerned that the, the, the headlines are not really what's going on. He thinks it's a much deeper issue about the U.S. Treasury market. Do you share some of those concerns about this sort of impact of those high rates, that, those, that aggressive Fed high, rate hiking that we saw? So first of all, I'm a big fan of Luke's because Luke will often reference a chart I put out on Twitter all throughout last year showing the top 20 drawdowns of equities against the behavior of treasuries, highlighting the point that treasuries failed for the first time in history to act as a counter to equity volatility. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I'm a big fan of Luke's just from that perspective because he always references that piece. But I think I think Luke is right. Now, I've been on this case actually all throughout last year too. Listen, back in April of last year, I was very loud in saying this environment is worse than 2008, worse than 2020. Now, I had people pushing back and saying, how could you say it's worse than 2008? You didn't have a single uh, private institution fail. Uh, okay, you almost had the UK fail with guilt, and now you've got what looks like a financial crisis based on rates from many months ago. People forget there are lags with this, right? Mm-hmm. Which means, by the way, that my original thesis that the Fed probably over-tightened is clearly proving out to be true, because now you've got to fill out this kind of collateral mismatch by the banks. But there are a lot of other risks that are at play here. It is absolutely true that the volatility in treasuries was so enormous last year that we got to a point where the system was nearly on the brink of no longer working, right? Because you can't have that which is your safe collateral against that which you're leveraging against act more volatile than what you're leveraging, right? It against. So the, the, the movement last year was incredibly violent when it came to duration. You didn't see spreads widen. And I've made this case many times before. These inflation shocks tend to be ultimately deflationary. You've got commercial real estate, which is a big problem. You've got perhaps maybe another oil crisis the other way, okay? Meaning that the the commodity side, which everyone was so bullish on, may end up actually reversing pretty dramatically. Um, And keep in mind, consumer savings uh, have gone round trip. So you've got a lot of consumers that are legitimately tapped out against a lot of uh, higher prices and a year where you have a president and, and a party wants to stay in power. So- it's going to be a volatile year, right? I think no matter what, but it is true. The idea that treasuries failed as a risk-off safe haven, that your safe collateral has a, has a problem. I promise everybody that's watching this, if treasuries have a problem, we all have a big problem. Do treasuries still have a problem? I don't think so. So this is the thing about that, that chart that Luke always references that I put out, top 20 drawdowns. The assumption that treasuries failed as safe collateral in a major drawdown for risk assets last year assumes that the drawdown for risk assets is over, that we've seen the lows in the stock market. Now, as much as I'm bullish on this kind of melt-up argument, I do believe there's a credit event out there. I do believe that if a credit event does manifest, and this was not it with this regional, in quotes, banking crisis, that probably means you're going to see a flight to safety trade. Now, keep in mind, the last two and a half, three weeks, you saw treasuries act counter to stocks. Mm-hmm. You saw that flight to safety behavior. You the, Clearly, the behavior is different, right, in terms of the way treasuries have responded to heightened stock market volatility and stress. So I, I, I think if anything, last year you can argue was a big reset in terms of the interplay of the asset classes to each other. But it, the idea that Apple and Google are safer than government debt simply because they have more cash on balance, that's really, really disturbing. Yeah, but that is that is how some people feel right now. Unequivocally it is, and, and, it, and it's completely irrational. Why is why are treasuries the pristine collateral? Because they own us, the government. 
The owners through taxation. You can't escape it. But but it's impossible. Yeah, I mean, this is the, you, you, it's interesting to get. You can really get into this philo- philosophical discussion about this whether they can really raise you know raise taxes and can we afford a recession. Yeah. This is some of what what Luke and I talked about today. It's very it's very thought provoking. But let me pull it back a little bit more to the near term here. So you believe that treasuries will still be a safe haven. Do you think that we are going to, if there's a credit event looming and there's strains in the system, do you think the Fed is going to, they just raised 25 basis points and we haven't even seen all of the effects yeah. of, do you think they're going to be forced to, to, to turn tail and to cut rates here soon? Well, I, I, it's kind of like, what's the definition of transitory? It's like, what's the definition of soon? I mean, soon could be right. a year from now, right? In fairness, transit, all this inflation, I think, is still transitory. The funny thing is, it's like three, four years in the context of markets and the context of generation is transitory. But nobody ever thinks of it that way. But, I, you know, if, if the Fed does it, it, its pivot, it'll probably be too late. I mean, that's always what ends up happening. I think, look, some people get, get confused by the thesis that I have around kind of short-term movements, April being high risk for a correction, a melt-up for the year, and then a credit event, credit event later in the year. And I would always go back and remind people that it's less about the Fed and it's more about the sequence of returns. The Fed will respond off of the sequence of returns. 1987 was a pre-election year. 1987, the Dow was up 30% prior to Black Monday. You had a melt-up and then a crash. Okay, it is, it, And then, by the way, the Fed pivoted because the Fed was raising rates. Okay, So I think Greenspan came in. So I, I think my, my, my argument here is that not that necessarily we have an 87-style crash, but there is precedent in history to see big moves on the way up in a single year followed by big shock moves on the way down, which would be a credit event, which then causes the Fed to say, wow, we really overdid it. And honestly, I think it's very clear they already did. They just can't admit it yet. So, and the melt up you think is coming from the fiscal side, since we're in a situation where we're going into an election year and you're likely going to have sort of some sort of stimulus coming from that side. It, it's already happening, Meg. I mean, if you look at the balance sheet on the on the Fed, it's it's basically QE again. They undid what two thirds of quantitative tightening was, I think, a stat that I saw from Jim Bianco. And so that, that tweet I put out, I said it just kind of randomly after having a little bourbon. I said, uh, uh, I said, you know, the pre-election years are the strongest of the presidential cycle, largely because of stimulus. Okay, well, how do you have stimulus with high inflation? A manufactured banking crisis, which, by the way, is what's happening. The and lending it, facility. So the yeah, lending no, exactly, facility. Right. And, it, and by the way, I, like, I, I am sincere when I say it's like, you know, everyone can be right about the bearish thesis, but it's about the dance in between the endpoints, not the endpoint being lower. The bears really do have to be very nervous because think about it. After, after all this, stocks couldn't collapse. Yes, regional bank stocks collapsed. Yes, small caps broke heavy. But headline averages didn't. If after all this, that was enough, the counter I get from that is, well, you know, this stuff acts with a lag. Yeah, but not too long of a lag. Mm. Right? So I, I don't know. I, I, it's, it seems to me for all the arguments that were not in a bullish setup, things look objectively worse, and yet stocks are still where they're at. Yeah, it's been that baffling people because it seems to be a different message coming from the treasury markets. Right, right. exactly. Right. Well, correct, exactly right. But it's also a different message. It's even a step further. It's a different message from the credit spread side of things. Yeah, the spreads widened a little bit in the last two and a half weeks, but they didn't really blow out. Which is why I said I don't think this is the credit event. Anything that if you're going to really have a credit event that marks the end of the bear market, which resets the flight to safety drawdown dynamic and makes it look like all oh, along treasuries were the better place to be, it probably has to be something that in quotes they can't fix. So this banking crisis, in quotes, is very fixable. They did it. Secure deposits. Done. Done. That's it. I mean, that's what the money printer's for. The Fed was, was designed to prevent banking runs. They, they're doing their job in that sense, right? Or at least try to mitigate it. You can argue. 
any kind of real crisis has to be one that they can't solve that easily, right, through a direct mechanism. That's why, again, I, I don't know where exactly it's going to come from, but I think the risk is probably one that nobody's paying attention to. And I'm not even clear if I'm paying attention to it, but I happen to think that commercial real estate, commodities, and consumers are still lingering tail risks that nobody wants to pay attention to. And by the time they do, the market will already be down heavy. Yeah. And sometimes some of these things happen all at once, you know, further right. complicating it. Hey, everyone, we're going to take a quick break right now to hear a word from our partners. We'll be right back with more of the day's top analysis on the Real Vision Daily Briefing. There are some reports of some strange strains in the hedge fund industry starting to show through. Do you worry about that? Do you think that could feed its way into the pension systems? So this is really um, there's a really interesting dynamic I think happening as it relates to treasuries, hedge funds, and banks and the interplay of the three. Okay, so the banks are in trouble because duration got crushed. So their safe collateral value collapsed. Okay, hedge funds. And speculative players have been massively short treasuries. Everyone was betting on rising rates. Okay, how do you solve the hole that banks have? You engineer a short squeeze in treasuries. Right? You have I, I get, there's a chart. I probably should have sent it to you before. There's a chart that shows that basically, if you look at the, the amount of uh, speculative shorts on treasuries, you're at the highest since like 2018, before the stock market itself went down 20 percent, and before you had a massive short squeeze in treasuries. So you have a similar dynamic where. You could end up having a flipping of where the strain comes from. Hedge funds benefited from the short bets. Banks got crushed from the short banks, pressure from the short treasury bet. Now, maybe you flip it. Maybe you end up having a short squeeze, which crushes the hedge funds, which causes a strain on them, basically transferring the strain from the regional banks to hedge funds. So it, it, we're in this kind of interesting environment where it's like the risks never go away. It's just about who takes the pain at any moment in time. It's literally a hot potato. Yeah, it's a hot potato. But And this is where the worry is somewhere that hot potato lands where it has bigger counterparty or systemic implications, right? Hedge funds, you wouldn't think so, but we've seen in the past that's not been true. Pensions, a little scarier. Yeah, you know, when um, when the Bank of England stepped in to uh, save guilts, to save the mm -hmm. pension side, I put out that tweet, I said, you know, uh, uh, the, the BOE was not, uh, intervention was not a pivot, it was a confession. Mm -hmm. The confession meaning they will do whatever it takes to save the bond market, the government bond market side, because that's about pensions, even at the expense of inflation, right? So I think that is the calculation that every single government is going to have to deal with now, right? That if you're going to have strains on the pension side because of this tremendous collapse in the safe collateral, they're going to find a way to prop up the safe collateral at the expense of everybody else. So we have a question. Uh, do you think the Fed will implement, from Trillion X, do you think the Fed will implement yield curve control to fight the treasury crisis? You know, you, that, that that means you're assuming Luke's calling it a treasury crisis. I'm not sure you agree, completely agree with that. But do you well, it, it's so? been a treasury crisis, but, but my response would be a treasury crisis ends up being an everybody crisis, just with a lag, right? Um, but I've used that line many times also on Twitter before, um, at lead lag report, shameless plug. Um, the Fed doesn't own the bond market. The bond market owns the Fed. The Fed, the, the bond market always moves and then the Fed follows. So the argument that they're going to do yield curve control, first of all, I'm sorry, that's debatable to begin with. But even if you assume that they did it, think about the kind of numbers they have to throw out there and think about what happens to inflation then. I mean, look at what happened with, with the yen last year with the Bank of Japan. So what, you're going to have a yield curve control, which means the dollar collapses, which I'm pretty sure is inflationary. 
Yeah. Well, this is, and by the way, there is a question about whether Japan can continue to control its yield curve. I mean, right. is that is that something that you're concerned about? It was a big worry. We were talking about it a lot. And then because of the banking crisis coming, it kind of went to the yeah. back seat. But when there was a change in leadership and the feeling they might start to increase the upper band of rates, the idea that do Japanese repatriate money back home and what does that do to treasury? So that would, to your point about the bond market owning the Fed, the Fed can say it wants rates lower, but if there are other dynamics going on, not clear that they will have their way, but presumably they'd unleash what they needed to. But how are you thinking about the Bank of Japan and all this? Yeah, I, I, the, the uh, Bank of Japan, as you know, is uh, and Japan in general is a basket case when it comes to financial markets. So who in the world knows how volatility is going to play out? The thing is, you know, there's a phenomenon. I mean, it's, it's known as volatility clustering, right? So in other words, in particular asset classes, volatility, when it happens, tends to kind of cluster in these periods and then does nothing for a while, then cluster again in these periods and then do nothing for a while. So I don't think, maybe I'm wrong, that you probably see any kind of real concerns around Japan because you already had the volatility moment last year, at least as far as the currency side. Um, and I even argue that with the dollar. I mean, the fact that, the you know, the dollar collapsed so hard uh, despite everybody thinking that it was the wrecking ball instead of got wrecked. Uh, that tells me that that may not be where the crisis to focus on uh, will will be most evident because you already had the movement already. It's got to be in something which nobody's paying attention to. That's always how this works. Mm. Uh, question from Dan. Do you think the drop in the two year was due to banks investing their borrowed funds from the window in the last few days? Yeah, I mean, it, it could be. Uh, there's, there's at the margin a lot of money that went very quickly into treasuries because it looks like 2008 all over again. The narrative was very strong. But just as quickly as that money rotated to the safety of treasuries, suddenly it's now coming out, right? I mean, we had that risk-on, risk-off dynamic. The, the, the cause doesn't necessarily have to be because of banks doing anything, but just because at the margin, investors are seeking safety and then suddenly get more aggressive when they feel that things are clear. But to me, that's probably more driver of yields than anything else. Mm. Just a quick moment to remind you, today's Real Vision Daily Briefing is sponsored by Crane Shares. Learn about their KRBN ETF at craneshares.com forward slash KRBN. Now back to today's analysis. So you were talking about the melt up in stocks. So you see that happening, but, but this is where you're talking about it, important being timing. You see that happening, but then you see trouble after that. Is that correct? Yeah, exactly right. And that's why I think it's closer to the end of the year where you might have some real strain, real strain in markets, which, again, I don't know if it's going to be a crash or not, but you have a lot of loans that are going to be rolling over into higher interest rates next year. As this is well documented. There's like a tsunami of refinancing that's coming. Okay, if that happens next year, the stock market and bond market has to respond off of it this year. That's how it works. It's a discounting mechanism, at least to some extent. So the, the old adage is that stocks tend to respond to things or see things nine months out in time. Okay, so if you're going to birth a credit crisis uh, based on rolling over a refinancing risk from these corporate loans that were at these very low rates post-COVID, it makes sense that in third, fourth quarters when you might have that really start to show in risk assets. But again, the, the funny thing is everyone thinks it's happening now. And, and think about how this, how, how if I'm right, how, how incredibly remarkable this could play out you end up emboldening the bulls like crazy mm. if, if if after all of this regional stuff the markets basically don't go down and markets actually push higher that's going to suck in even more bulls that's how you end up having bubbles that's how you end up having the bull getting screwed right it's like you can see how the path can can make everybody 
lose their minds this year. You have the clear argument for a reason for stocks to break down. Stocks don't break down. People start saying nothing's going to break the stock market then. The Fed's not going to stop hiking rates. That's it. They're done. And then everybody gets in, and then the market hits everybody. That's Again, I go back to this is what markets do. Bear markets make fools of bulls and bears. It works both ways. But this time you see you don't think that stocks and bonds will be correlated. You're not going to see. I don't think stocks and treasuries will be. Right. I don't think stocks and treasuries will be. Right. I do believe that um, we may look back and say that we had, with hindsight, two back-to-back bad bond years. 2022 was the bad bond year from a duration perspective. 2023, the bad bond year from a credit risk perspective. Mm. So they're both bad, but there's differentiation. So treasuries can end up being okay and benefiting because that's mainly treasuries, you know, duration, you know, no credit risk. It's the it's the corporate loan credit spread side, which is really, I think, where the, the pain point likely comes. So do you believe that inflation is going to be moving lower? Do you, do you see this this continuing on? Because this is this is huge, this is where a lot of people separate and are having a really hard time. There's such a such a debate about this. And does it matter to your forecast, I guess, is another question. Well, I mean, the thing is, like, you know, we have yet to really see the effects of housing on the consumer psyche, on spending, against savings, which are very low, um, which round trip. So I, I think there could be an outright inflation crash, given the timing of all this stuff and given the lag responses of interest rates. And if you have a banking crisis, that's that's every crisis is inherently a deflationary shock. So, uh, like I know, I get it. a lot of people are still very much on we're in a secular inflation environment. I could unequivocally be wrong. I tend to be much more of a deflationist in my thinking longer term. But all I know is that, as I keep on saying, debt is only inflationary when you can't issue more of it. Right? Debt is only inflationary when you can't. The moment you can't issue more debt to roll over that debt, it's deflationary. So these rates are very elevated. There's not much demand, even at five year on T bills. You can see it. Money's still going to stocks. For all the arguments around why would anybody buy the stock market when you can get a guaranteed four percent on on T bills, people are still degenerate gamblers. They still want to go into the stock market because they see they can go higher. I'm sorry, it's true, right? So so until you break that, and that will take some real pain to break, which would be a, a deflationary shock. Uh, people are just going to end up doing themselves a disservice by debating whether it's inflation or disinflation or deflation. There's going to be a deflation cra- uh, shock at some point. That's what every credit crisis is. And when that happens, it's going to be big time trouble for everybody. It's interesting that you say that because not many people have brought up that sort of psychology that people just, they just equities is is what they've known. It's what they've done for, you know, most of their adult life. And it's where they see the biggest opportunity no matter what's happening. It just hasn't been an environment where that hasn't been the case. So it takes time to break a habit. I mean, I think that's the, the easiest way to say it. It just takes time. It's it, people want the excitement, and unless you suddenly go back to an era where commission rates are a hundred dollars per trade, which by the way would stop all this nonsense, right, and actually be better for investors because it means people are not over trading based on gut feeling, which is what zero commission trading effectively is is enabling. Um, those animal spirits still got to get killed. Mm. I, I like I. I... I noticed you said didn't say dulled. You said killed because yes. it has to be, I guess, ugly for it to. Uh, question um, from from Dan: Do you see major rotation out of tech after the quarter mm. ends? Money going back into banks, oil. Isn't that amazing? That all it took was two and a half weeks to kill the value trade. Yeah, that's right? about like, right. Really? 
And look at it's not just banks, it's also energy, right? I mean, it's amazing. Money didn't come out of the stock market; it rotated to tech. I mean, which is what's amazing about this last two and a half weeks and all this narrative. It's like if you're having a financial crisis, you think tech would actually go up? Of course not, right? So, um, you have a credit event, yeah, tech, everything's going to go down because everything correlates the same way. But you know, going back to the, just what we just said, it's like old habits are hard to break. What do people do? They went right to tech in all this. Yeah. Right. Absolutely. So that, that alone tells you the animal spirits have to break. The people people just keep on wanting to choose different sectors within the stock market rather than choosing T-bills. We're going to take another quick break to hear a word from our partners. We'll be right back with more of the day's top analysis on the Real Vision Daily Briefing. Uh, so what about gold? So this is a question that comes up with so much disagreement about inflation. This is from, t- uh, uh, from uh, who asked this question? Um, but that really the safer place if you want to protect yourself because of the volatility we've seen in bonds, because of what happened last year, because no one agrees can agree on whether or things are going to be inflationary or not, is to go to gold. Is gold going to compete with treasuries as a safe haven? So generally speaking, if you think about what the safe haven benefits off of, it benefits off of stock market volatility. It's not about direction, it's about volatility. There are really only four beneficiaries of stock market volatility historically. Treasuries tend to be the best because there's yield. So if you're wrong in your signal and you play defense with treasuries, you still have a chance of making money. Gold, beneficial stock market volatility, plenty of evidence around that. The dollar, like we saw last year. And then on a relative basis, the utility sector. So really you're only playing with four things in your opportunity set for risk off volatility. Treasuries, gold, the dollar, and utilities. Now, to your point, uh, the dollar was the play last year, clearly. It's like that was the best inflation hedge, ironically. Last year was long the dollar. Treasuries are trying to show some signs of life in high volatility, but clearly gold is the better play so far this year of the four. I suspect gold will continue to do well. And I've made this point also, which is really, I think, would make sense in the context of gold momentum. Gold is the ultimate diversifier, the ultimate non-correlated asset in a portfolio. For gold to have momentum, you need to have big allocators believe that the bear market is going to take time to play out. Otherwise, why would anybody own gold? They might as well get concentrated beta, get concentrated correlation. So you need to have at the margin allocators believing that they need true diversifiers in a portfolio, which would only occur if they actually believe the bear market will take some time to play out. I think that at the margin is probably what's happening with gold, mm. right? With the volatility that happened with crypto last year, yes, Bitcoin's come back, you know, nicely this year. But there's, I think there's a there's a sense by uh, larger institutional players that maybe this cycle is going to take longer than most thought to play out. And if that's the case, you want to diversify against the correlation risk of what's connected to beta and go into that which has no correlation to beta, which is gold. Mm. And what and and let's end up on your on your bond on your treasury bond outlook. Um, what do you think is going to happen from here? What are you looking at? If I'm right, there's a credit event. You're going to see some real outsized gains in long-duration treasuries, you know, and meaning going up in price, dropping yield as junk debt yields rise and those prices drop. So a real widening. Selfishly, I want to see that with my for my JoJo junk on junk off bond ETF, but irrespective of that. So you can have one of these periods where you know long-duration treasury in a very quick and aggressive way could be up. 15, 20% seemingly out of nowhere. There's a, this convexity aspect of treasuries, which is really underappreciated. When treasuries run in high volatility sequences for stocks, 
you can get like a 3,000 basis point spread against stocks in a matter of weeks. doesn't quite play like an out-of-the-money put option on stocks, obviously, but it's got some of that sort of relative spread differential potential. So I think there's one of those periods at some point this year where treasuries can really rip against equities in a big, big way, again, in a credit event. You saw that for a little bit of time there in the last two and a half weeks, right? Again, you... Being long treasuries, you really outperformed equities really quickly. You got a real big spread suddenly. But that's not, I think, I think that's like an appetizer for what could be the coming. That's exactly what I was thinking. An appetizer for the main event, um, as, as scary as that may be, that we can't yet get, get our sights on. Um, Michael, great stuff. We're going to have to leave it there because we've got to fill some people in on some stuff that's going on. But it was so wonderful to catch up with you. Thank you so much. Yeah, hopefully, I will still have enough hair on the next time. <laughs> I know. We're all... We're all feeling the stress, believe me. Appreciate you sharing your views. Thanks so much. We're going to be back the same time tomorrow. Thanks for joining us, everyone. Today's Real Vision Daily Briefing is sponsored by Crane Shares. Learn about their KRBN ETF at craneshares.com forward slash KRBN. What's up, revolutionaries? Thanks for tuning in to the Real Vision Daily Briefing. For more content like this, head over to realvision.com and get unfiltered access to the very best, brightest, and biggest names in finance.